Hello, everyone, and welcome to One Chillport Podcast, episode 281. I'm Benjamin Yoder, here today, back on a normal weekend day recording, so not, you know, recording this on a Wednesday, although I think last week, I, I wasn't quite sure what happened, but it looks like maybe the podcast was like, maybe available way earlier than it should have been. I, I didn't notice it until after I had gotten back home, and it showed that like it had published technically on the same day as the last podcast, which makes me think for some reason I published it in like the past, essentially. So it may have been available all week or something. I don't know. I didn't look at my phone to figure that out. So <laughs> either way, you know, whatever. It happened. Time. Move on with my life. So anyway, so yeah, the reason I was out uh, the last couple of weeks, one was the camping trip, which we talked about last week. But uh, then I went up to Portland Retro Game Expo this uh, this last weekend. So that was a fun, good time. Uh, didn't really do a lot there in terms of like act the actual show. My main concern was talking to three people, and I didn't, I wanted to talk to Jeremy Parrish, but he was not, I was not able to see him, and that's fine, like, I I think the whole, the, the question with Jeremy was probably the least, least important kind of thing, um, but I did want to talk to Frank Cifaldi, uh, mainly around, like, Dogen preservation, so if you don't know, I've had conversations with people in the community before about uploading Dogen games to archive.org, especially ones that just are, seem to not be available on the internet. But uh, there's a lot of kind of weird ethical questions with that. You know, I don't really mind companies so much and like uploading their stuff so much because, you know, it's a company, right? <laughs> but when it comes to individuals, I feel a little weirder about that because it's like somebody's own project. And there's like kind of the preservation aspect of it, of uploading it. But then also if they decide to sell it later or or something like in the case of like the X68000 Club, you know, they still sell their discs that include like there's stuff from like the 2000s and those people who made those games, I assume are long, long gone, but they still charge for that disc and everything. So yeah, I don't know. It's always kind of a weird thing. And I didn't really get a great answer when I was talking to him. Well, it's not like it wasn't a bad answer. It was just, it was kind of a make your own decision about it kind of thing. We can't really tell you the ethics, but I feel like the general impression was like, Hey, make an effort to contact the person. And then if you don't get a response, you know, live your life essentially right um you know how much damage can really be done kind of thing for something like this so i don't know um there's definitely gonna be something that i will probably start to look at um there are a lot of games i will say so like trying to figure that out on an individual by individual basis is the other thing i also want to make sure that they're not like selling it online or something like that right um and there's like some weird like uh you know, the exceptions. Like if you remember when we played 24 Tokyo forever ago, I got a physical copy of 24 Tokyo that was from Comic Cat. Um, I, w- I did not get it at Comic Cat. Somebody was selling it online, thank God, um, because I could like trying to find 24 Tokyo stuff in the modern day is nearly impossible. Um, but anyway, so, uh, but that version on that disc is slightly different from the version that's sold on DL site. So like part of me is like, I want to upload this to like archive.org, but it is still largely the same video game. Um, but I don't think studio busk is an operational now, but I'm, sh- I'm assuming if somebody buys 24 Tokyo on DL site, that money is going somewhere. Right. So, so there's kind of some weird stuff with that. And then episode two and three, as far as I'm aware, are just completely unavailable online. So if I do get that, that I definitely would be more than willing, I think, to go ahead and upload it just because I don't, I don't think that thing will ever appear anywhere or ever again. I only know of one person who has it um, and, and they're Japanese and trying to have that conversation is a 
difficult thing if you can't actually speak any Japanese, right? So anyways, it was a good conversation. Um, and then I, uh, Frank had to go run off somewhere. So I talked to her Kelsey a little bit and, and I think she kind of gave me some, she was the one who kind of recommended reaching out and like checking the emails and like, even if they're old, maybe just sending an email and seeing what happens kind of thing. So Anyways, we'll see how it goes. Um, and then I also talked to Chris Kohler. I had some questions about, he has like books that he writes about video games. And look, I'm just not a big reader. Like I, like I, I, I buy books with the greatest intentions. I bought that Awada book or whatever. And I just never, never read them. The The reason why the Reggie book happened at all is because he had an audio book. So I talked to Chris a long time ago being like, hey, you can do an audio book. And at the time he was like, yeah, maybe, maybe. But um, now it seems pretty likely there will there will not be audiobooks, which which kind of stinks. Because I think Chris is like pretty good when it comes to speaking. I, I guess I don't really know how he sounds when he reads content. But you know, I think Chris Kohler is a fairly notable person in the game industry, and and like having that kind of like firsthand reading from him, um, I think would be something that'd be valuable. But you know, got it. He he's got other jobs and other stuff going on. So you know, just because it would be a good thing to do doesn't necessarily mean that's where you want to spend your time, right? So. Uh, and then I talked about some Chibi Robo stuff too, um, because some of the community in the Chibi Robo community asked me about some statue that was like posted on like his Twitter at some point. And then the statue got delisted from Twitter. And then you're like, why did this get delisted? Kind of thing is the whole thing. And really the answer is just Chris was like, I wipe my my social media every time um, <laughs> I change jobs. So so anyways, it uh it was uh basically that was the main thing as I just wanted to go talk to those few people. There's some panels there. Um I don't know. None of them really jumped out at me as like, I really want to learn about this topic kind of thing. But I think I've talked about it on the podcast before where I personally kind of feel like I'm I'm consuming less and less video game content from other people. Um, and, you know, I, I think that part of that is probably just, you know, I'm kind of doing my own thing so much right now that like when I'm done doing my thing, I kind of don't want to just jump right into listening to somebody else do exactly what I was doing, but with some other franchise, right? <laughs> so there's definitely things that interest me for sure. But, um, but you know, I'm not regularly consuming anybody's like YouTube videos or something like that anymore. So, um, so I think panels kind of had a similar feeling with that where it's like, ah, I don't really know if I want to go to any of these that much. And the majority of the panels I would have gone to were on Sunday. And I only went to Portland Retro Game Expo on Saturday. So, um, I didn't bring a lot of space with me though, just because of the whole situation in terms of like what I did for my, my lodging and, and stuff like that. I, I went to like a hotel first, but then went to a friend's house after that. But like, because I had to carry my stuff around at, um, at Portland Retro Game Expo, I couldn't like, you know, use a traditional carry-on for the plane or anything like that, or unless I wanted to carry the carrier on around the convention floor. Uh, so I just had like a backpack and wasn't a lot of space. So I picked up like a, the Media, a Media Vision PS2 game that's called like Heavy Metal Thunder, um, which kind of looks neat. I picked up a few Game Boy games that were import games. All these games are import games, uh, the ones I'm talking about right now. Uh, the Game Boy games are mostly like kind of games for girls. There's like one that was like Dr. Lin. There's another one that was, um, uh, I forget what it was. It was some kind of anime, uh, game. Uh, I don't remember the name of the series or whatever, but it was very like kind of games for girls looking. And then there was, a uh, another title that I, I wasn't quite sure what it was. So I just, just, I just, yeah, they were cheap. I just went ahead and picked them up basically. Just like these, these little labels, uh, look cute. So at some point I'll sit down and really start to look at them. Um, but for now I just kind of grabbed them just because I was like, ah, I'll check this out. So picked it up 
And uh, we'll see. I'll probably put him on in at some point. I want to play the Sanrio game that I got recently featuring the little, uh, I don't know if he's a dog cinnamon roll or something. It's a bunny or a dog. I think it's a dog, but it looks like a bunny to me. So anyways, maybe some irresponsible purchases there. Unfortunately, I, I, I was doing working on the panels that I'm doing for like Port or not Portland, Komori Con. And one of the things I said in that, that panel or, or have added to the presentation is just like, Really making sure you make a connection with the games you buy. I think it's like kind of a bad thing if you buy a game and then like you can't really remember, you know, what that game is sometimes. So the fact that I was like sitting there doing that with some of the Game Boy games is like, ah, maybe that was a bad idea. You know, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have purchased those games because now I'm like, I can't even remember exactly what caught my eye that made me pick it up. I'm sure if I looked at the label, I would remember, but you know, you know. Yeah, no. So that, and I got a Soul Bubbles for the DS because that's like a game that I was always kind of interested in. Um, I believe you use the touch screen to kind of like direct a bubble on screen. You use, the, I think, the microphone to kind of blow into it and that kind of like pushes the bubbles around on screen. Um, it always looked like a fun way to use the DS. Um, I'm always about like using that hardware as much as possible with like systems like the DS and the Wii U. So that was one of those games that always seemed like it was a good job. It did a good job with that. But at the time, I just didn't have nearly as much money. Um, I'm sure it probably got cheap at some point, but now it's around like, well, like Portland Retro Game Expo, I saw like five copies for like $30. So I was like, oh, I'll pick it up. So it was the thing I kept thinking about, probably just because I saw it so much. But but yeah, and that was pretty much it for Portland Retro Game Expo. I pretty much left around like three o'clock that day. There was like the little Blockbuster thing. I, I didn't really get into that despite, you know, growing up going to Blockbusters. I don't know. It, it is kind of just like, well, this kind of looks like a Blockbuster, I suppose. Um, so I didn't really like feel a lot about it. It's, it, it was in collaboration with the la last blockbuster video. I forget where that's located, if that's in Oregon or somewhere else, but so they were selling like, you know, membership cards and stickers and hats and all this stuff. So, um, that was uh, a little thing there. And then they had like in the museum section, they had like a Nintendo power art gallery and then like some Pac-Man stuff going on. Uh, although there was, so there was a, let me see, I actually have the flyer right over here. There's the... Uh, the Shiro Media Group, uh, they had like a Sega Saturn room there where they just had a bunch of Sega Saturns set up. I'm curious where they got that, all those Sega Saturns from. I'm like, if they just have them or if they had to like, you know, get them from somewhere else. But yeah, they had like maybe like 20 or so Sega Saturn machines set up with like various controllers and things like that. And they, you could just go in there and play them and they had a panel, I believe. But the big thing is I think they're launching a magazine, Shiro Magazine, um, so I'll put a link in the, the podcast notes. Uh, but yeah, they have like a, a Sega Saturn podcast and, uh, they have a bunch of like stuff they do around the Sega Saturn. So I was kind of curious about that mainly cause, um, I do want to have some like greater plans for the PCFX going forward and something like that could definitely be some kind of inspiration. I did ask them some questions. I probably should have told them what I was doing. Sometimes I just don't want to sit there and be like, hello, I'm doing a thing. Here's my project, especially when it's like not started. Right. Cause you don't want to sit there and like promise a bunch of stuff to somebody and be like, well, now I'm going to flake out of this kind of thing. Right. I don't expect to flake out of it, but yeah, it's just, it's kind of weird when you're like sitting there and like, I don't have a thing started, but let me tell you about it kind of thing. I feel like personally, uh, you know, I, it, it probably made sense to be like, Hey, I'm planning to do this kind of thing that, and I, I don't necessarily know if like, you know, the Sega Saturn stuff would super apply to PCFX just given how, um, you know, limited the Saturn's or the PCFX library is and, and kind of the different focus of it. So anyways, so that was pretty much the time at the actual convention floor though. And then I went to my friend's house to play some games there. Um, the one thing I did do while I was there, um, that, uh, 
I don't know if I was like excited to do per se, but I did mess around with, uh, he has like pachinko machines in his basement. So he had the Castlevania erotic violence pachinko machine. And then I saw him play a little bit of Saki. It's like the Mahjong mon- our anime. Um, and I feel like when, <laughs> I feel like I really need to someday just like sit down and really figure out pachinko because there's so much visually that happens during pachinko. But at the same time, it's like, I have no idea what's happening. And I feel like, I don't know if I'm tricking myself into feeling like there's more going on in Pachinko or not. Especially the Saki machine. It seemed like there was like some kind of Mahjong hands happening and some scores you're getting based off that. Where the erotic violence machine, I couldn't really figure out what was happening at all, really. I mean, it's really like a, a Pachinko slot machine, right? So you throw, you shoot the Pachinko balls up, they fall into the, the hole, and then the slots play. And then depending on what slots you get, some animation plays out, right? But like, there's a bunch of extra like little UI elements and lights that I don't know if they mean anything. You know, you'll, you only have one button, so it's like, how much can you actually activate kind of thing? But I feel like I'm when I play Pachinko, I'm often more confused then I understand things. I have like a Hokuto no Ken or Fist of the North Star Pachinko PS2 game as well. And a couple of like um, Sanyo Pachinko games on PS1, I feel like it's what they're called. And I feel like I just got to figure it out. Like, like even if it's nothing, as long as I understand it's like nothing is happening, that's, that's what I, I want. I want to be in a position where I feel confident to say nothing is happening or something is happening one or the other so so uh that was fun so but yeah that was pretty much it it was a pretty pretty relaxing trip otherwise not a lot going on just hanging out with people um and yeah hanging out at the the convention there's a couple different like podcasts i talked to there's one podcast i talked to and for the life of me i cannot find the podcast card that they gave me so i need to do some digging around my wallet and see if i shoved it in there or uh, maybe just go to the website and see if i can find um you know who was what podcasts were there and see if any of them ring a bell because there's somebody I had a nice conversation with about there too or about to, with there too so anyways I think that's really all there is to say about it, though. Like, like really, not a lot happened. I mean, I, I feel like that's true for most Portland Retro Game Expo shows. Like, for me, as somebody traveling out of, out of town, the impression I get is that, like, from a place that has, like, a you know, in Las Vegas, I can buy games from retro game stores here all the time, right? If I want to. There's quite a few of them. Um, you know, going to that kind of thing feels like more of a, um, a meeting up with people you know kind of thing. And I, I didn't know anyone there, really, so... You know, I, I, I hit the people I wanted to talk to, but, you know, that's like people that I just know from, you know, podcasts and stuff, not because I have a, a, a actual relationship with them. Right. So. So, yeah. But um, but before I went to Portland Retro Game Expo, I actually actually did sit down and play uh, one game. And that was Samba de Amigo for the Nintendo Wii. Now, Samba de Amigo on the Wii, um, if for some reason you don't know what Samba de Amigo is, it is a rhythm game. That was, I believe, originally an arcade game, but it got ported to the Dreamcast, and they have maraca controllers, right? So you shake these controllers, and um, there's there's motion sensors in them. So if you shake at the on the upper level, it hits like the upper notes. If you hit the middle level, it hits the middle notes, and there's a lower level and the lower notes. And the maracas, I, I believe, I've never played it, so hopefully I'm getting this right. But like the uh, the Dreamcast one, um, but there's like in the maracas, I believe there's like sand or whatever that makes the the maraca noise and stuff. So you kind of have that tactile feeling of the stuff shaking around. And then also the motion control, so you're kind of going up and down. There's also like posing that happens too, as well. So, anyways, that's the Dreamcast version of that game. And so, you know, it kind of made a lot of sense for them to make a Wii version of this game when the Wii came out. But it does feel very fueled by that, like, um, <laughs> that Wii sentiment of like, hey, Wii motion control should be able to track all this stuff great. 
Um, and, and so, you know, it makes a ton of sense for you to bring Samba de Migo to the Wii. Um, my experience, it, it definitely feels like a game that had to have a lot of compromises, probably. I mean, again, I haven't played that original game, but it, the controller just doesn't quite feel up to the task, in my opinion. Now, I was reading some reviews online about it, and people were saying basically like, oh, you know, some people would say it doesn't work at all, and some people said that there was like perfect accuracy. So I think a lot of it comes down to like actually tracking the player, comes down to, uh, being very specific with the angles of the Wii remote. So, you know, like for the most part, the game itself is a very traditional career mode kind of game thing, right? You go in there, you play a bunch of songs, you get a ranking if you get out. And as long as you pass, you can keep going. And there's like five or six different difficulty levels or something like that. And it's all, you know, in the, in the Maraca way, it's all like kind of, I guess, I don't know exactly where Maracas are from, but it's like that kind of like Spanish, Mexican kind of uh, music, uh, and they're like, the only real songs in there I really knew is Mambo Number no. 5, and the other songs I knew in there were just some extra Sega music that ended up in there, like, there's some Space Channel stuff in there from Space Channel 5, and then also, I know the original Samba Day Amigo song that, that, because that was in Fancy Star Online, um, later on, but you basically just play through that, but yeah, the, uh, the controllers themselves, um, do a really good job of emulating kind of the feeling of shaking the maracas in some ways, you know, as, as best you can for using something that's not a proprietary controller, right? So it has like a slight rumble every time you shake the, the nun or the Wiimote and, or the nunchuck. I guess the nunchuck probably wouldn't have rumble. I only use the two Wii remote mode just cause I wanted to get the best accuracy possible. And so you get the little shake of the controller that kind of replicates the little like, you know, sand or whatever that's in there that's shaking around. And then also if you have the uh, speaker on the Wii Remote turned on, um, which honestly most of the time I don't because I, for game recording stuff, I have to turn it off. Um, it makes a shaking noise. So it actually does a really good job of kind of emulating the feeling of using maracas, even though it's just, you know, the standard Wii Remote. Um, and so it's like, it feels good to, to actually do the shake. And when it really works well, I think it's very successful in terms of like, you know, with all the slower songs specifically, it's really kind of easy to track. Um, the real challenge I think comes from the fact that like, it's less about height and more about angle. It feels like when it comes to the game, figuring out where you are. So if you do like kind of go up, you kind of got to tilt the controllers back a little bit to kind of give it that angle and then shake up. And then in the middle, you have to kind of like hold the controllers straight up and then and then shake it that way. And then when you shake it down, you got to kind of put, point the controllers down and shake it that way. Um, but when things start to get really fast, um, you know, keeping track of the fact that you are angling the controllers correctly can get really difficult. So you'll, you'll go up and you'll shake, but you're still holding the controller in a way that it's like just the vertical up. So the game still kind of thinks you're, you're just shaking in the middle space rather than the upper space. And it, it is, it does seem like the game does a generally good job of tracking, you know, what those angles are, but actually training yourself to make sure you're doing the right angles is um is really challenging and the game does have a tutorial that kind of explains it all to you and shows you the I, I don't know the samba de amigos monkey's name but him sitting there showing you what position you should have the wii remotes in but i feel like in a game like that with how fast it gets and how quickly you have to kind of by the end start switching around between different notes or like doing these kind of like cross uh uh you know, shake where you're basically doing a middle shake and a higher shake on the left side of the screen and you're kind of pointing over and like making sure you're tilting the controllers right and things like that. It, it becomes really challenging to keep track of that stuff. And then so obviously being a rhythm game, if you mess up, you, you kind of just mess up, right? And it just kind of gets knocked off your score. 
And so while it's like, it feels good to play the songs, I think generally, and like, I would probably recommend to people that they check out Samba de Amigo on the Wii. I don't think I would really recommend people try to like actually serious pl seriously play Samba de Amigo on the Wii. Um, just cause I, I found that it was just a lot more of a headache to kind of make sure my form was, you know, super, uh, you know, accurate. Now I think there's a good argument though, that like to some degree, normal rhythm games have this too, um, where it comes to like pattern recognition and mu muscle memory that comes from that. Right. So you see a pattern that comes up and you don't even have to think about it. You just know, you just know the way you need to swipe your hands and stuff and the order and the speed and all that stuff. And when you are just playing a rhythm game casually, that doesn't, that doesn't do like that is not something you can really do super easily. So I think there is maybe some connection you can make there of like, once you get the muscle memory down of like where your hands should be, you know, if you played Samba de Amigo for the Wii long-term, you might be able to get there where you could like perfect every song reliably. But as somebody who's a casual rhythm game player, um, by the end of it, I definitely just kind of felt like, um, there were some songs I kind of more or less gave up on. And, um, what would happen is like, if I failed the song enough, but I felt like it was just like me, like, I just really couldn't get it tuned in. I would just kind of start, <laughs> I hate doing this, but like randomly shaking to like, like, like I would kind of try to follow the song, but I would basically just kind of shake the whole time. And, um, that would brute force my, myself through some songs, which is not the best way to play a game like that. Um, you know, but it would just make me move on because I felt like the difficulty level of songs, um, because of that tracking element was not particularly consistent. So like the last song in the game was like way easier than the, like, you know, middle game, ooh la la, you know, I forget what the song's called, but there's like one ooh la la song that I remember, but anyways, the Space Channel 5 song, one of the Space Channel 5 songs is literally, in my opinion, the hardest song in that game, and I just eventually brute forced it, as much as I love Space Channel 5 soundtrack, so, um, there's like a bunch of mini games in there too, but I just kind of ignored those, it's really the, the, the music game aspect that I think is really the focus, and um, it just, you know, has a great looking style that is the problem with all rhythm games, I feel like, where like there's so much stuff, not maybe not so much stuff happening on screen, but there's a lot of like bubbly graphics and things like that, right? Of these characters all bouncing around and there's me's with trumpets or something. Maybe they don't have trumpets, maybe they just have the maracas actually. I'm trying to, I feel like there were characters with trumpets bouncing around at some point. Um, but, you know, this kind of really colorful bubbly background that's just like super, super, you know, Sega Dreamcast kind of aesthetic but, you know, you as the player, you're staring at the six points on screen where you need to shake the maracas and that's, that's it. That's <laughs> like your, your pure focus. So all that other stuff in the background is kind of lost on you, except for the beginning of the end of the song. So it's more for, you know, somebody who's watching you play kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, I just don't know what they could have done more to kind of, uh, make that game work with, with the technology that's in the original Wii remotes. You know, the accelerometers in the Wii remote just aren't quite the greatest thing. Um, but clearly people were able, like based off what I was reading online, people were able to make that game work. So maybe just if you decide to pick up Samba de Amigo on the Wii, you know, just know your mileage is probably going to vary a little bit on that. Um, and, and I personally, for me, I'd say maybe like, it felt like maybe 80 to 90% accurate if not a little bit more than that and, and just handle it casually because I can't really rely on the rest of those notes. I kind of felt the same way about Gabriella's ghostly groove where I, at some point was like, I don't, I don't trust this game enough to let me, um, to, for me to really go and try to 
the Gabriella Ghostly Groove on the Wii, WiiWare specifically, actually, not the, the 3DS one, but I don't trust the motion controls enough to to really dedicate myself to this game and really expect to get, like, a high score on a song kind of thing. And thankfully, the game is very, very generous. You know, as long as you get a C, you know, you can pass a song. So that's that's all that really matters. So anyways, very cool game. And, uh, and I think it's definitely worth uh, giving a look if you're kind of looking at different ways people use the Wii Remote and kind of, like, interesting... Uh, styles even if like it didn't really 100% um um translate over I feel like from what probably my my what I believe the maracas are like again I have not actually played Samba de Amigo using the maracas so welcome to Patreon time Paul Daniel Henry Dagger Jillian and the one and only discreet Thank you so much for supporting me. Um, I, as per usual, there's bonus videos every other week. Uh, at least that's sort of been the, the case. I am honestly, in general, I should, I'm kind of slowing down the YouTube channel at the moment while I kind of replan things. I think the Patreon stuff will continue to go every two weeks, though, because you guys are paying for that content. I kind of feel like you should, you should get something for me taking your money, right? Um, and like the stuff that's going up on there is not like, you know, the, the, the hardest stuff to make, right? It's, it's usually pretty straightforward. So, um, th- I believe you'll continue to receive those, those, that content every couple weeks for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so bonus videos, uh, for $5 every month, basically. Um, one thing you can also do if you are in the Patreon group is ask a podcast question. So if you want to ask a question, there's a post that goes up every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific time, if I schedule it correctly, <laughs> and you can go ahead and add your question to a comment, and uh, you can uh, basically, you know, insert a podcast question. So Jillian pre-prepares these for us just in case nobody sends anything. So for Jillian's question this week, we have, before the internet or as a kid, what sort of creative video game works did you make? Um, this is kind of hard for me to remember because, like, honestly, I I had the internet very early on as a kid. So, like, I kind of don't have a lot of memory of before the internet kind of thing. Like, you know, I probably was getting on a PC around, like, 95 kind of thing. And that's when I really started to navigate around a PC and start playing games on there probably. So, I was, like, five years old probably around then. And then, uh, and then you know, around the early 90s, my dad... I don't know exactly what year, but my dad got on broadband very early, which um, that's kind of kind of accurate for him. Like he 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 generally, you know, he was working in the IT business and stuff like that. So and he likes to kind of like stay on top of things generally when it comes to that stuff. So if he gets something in the area that's like you know specifically you know uh, uh, interesting from a technological standpoint or like is a huge benefit, he will pay the money to to get it kind of thing, right? That's what I feel like, at least. That's my my impression of, of you know, how he's made purchasing decisions over the years. Um, and so broadband was something that was, like, really introduced to me early in life and cable internet kind of thing. And so I've always kind of had, like, this ongoing internet connection that I haven't had to worry about, like, the time I spend on it and things like that very much at all kind of thing. So anyways... Um, so I've been exposed to the internet the majority of my life. So, so there's not a lot of like pre-internet stuff I can really answer for that. But what I can say that there are things that I've worked on in my life that were never intended for the internet, if that makes sense. Like I, I just made stuff because I just wanted to make it kind of thing. Um, but a lot of this stuff is usually just kind of like little stupid things that were not like, you know, I wasn't doing a lot of like, you know, I guess what you'd call 
I don't know, like archiving or like, you know, writing articles. Like like the stuff I do on this website is not really reflected in that old stuff. Um, I think the bigger thing is I just like making stupid stuff usually. So um, a couple of things were, uh, I don't know. I, I don't remember how involved I was in this, but like I remember we were sitting behind my TV at my uncle's house and we had a tape recorder and um, he had Final Fantasy Mystic Quest in there. We'd go to different areas in Final Fantasy Mystic Quest and we would record the background music and then we would put like lyrics to them or make up lyrics, improvised lyrics basically. And so we had these tapes of us with Final Fantasy Mystic Quest music just like making up different <laughs> different uh, uh, lyrics and stuff. And it was, it was all really stupid things. I'm trying to remember if I can think of anything off the top of my head. But, like, actually trying to sing them properly on the podcast is a whole other thing. And I think that led into, um, if you ever saw, like, the video games, like, Music Ruined series, I think that probably came out of that whole exercise that we did where I just, like, made Ocarina of Time sound effects to recreate the title screen song and stuff like that. So, um, but, yeah, uh, pre-internet, that's something we did. Um, I've built out a um, fake TV once. So, like, uh, we had these little black CRTs that were at, at um, my mom's house. They're little cheap TVs, basically. And the, we got uh, one for my sister and one one for me. And so we used these CRTs for a very long time. Um, but uh, we used to play Final Fantasy XI on it. And so, like, what would, what would it kind of looked like an old-school computer setup. You know, when people used to use, like, TVs for their computers, basically. Or I guess nowadays we're back in that spot in some degree. But, like, this was kind of when, when you know, uh, TVs were not really connected to computers very often. And so um, I had a CRT on my desk, and I played Final Fantasy XI on it almost exclusively. And so I had, like, a little, you know, mouse and keyboard setup kind of thing because you didn't play the PS2 version of Final Fantasy XI with the controller. At least that I feel like very few people played with the controller, at least in the US. I don't know about Japan. Um, and then uh, so it looked like a normal desk setup, honestly, and just with a PS2 as a computer instead. So I recreated that TV using some construction paper and a box. And it was it was not even a, <laughs> the box was not something that I probably should have been messing with because it was a gift for my sister from my dad. And so the box showed up at our house and I had like two weeks until my sister was coming out to visit for Christmas or something. And I took this box and I dressed up this box that my dad sent. And then I put the black cardboard paper all over it to like, you know, replicate the black plastic. And then I took a screenshot from Final Fantasy XI and I like glued that into the center of the screen kind of thing. And then that was the the little like Final Fantasy XI monitor again, which my sister played on that same thing. So she knew what was going on with it. So I also made like a little cat once as well. That was like a present where, um, you know, it was a longer box. And so I wrapped it up and I gave it little cat ears and I took some cardboard or, or paper that I like folded up in the squares or something and and basically made those little feet for the, the cat and it had a little tail. So a little cat present. So that was kind of fun. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else though. Uh, the thing that keeps coming to my mind is that we did make a list of like Animal Crossing, like KK Slider songs. And I remember like managing this list of like who had what kind of thing. So we can maximize our KK Slider, um, song acquisition. So like I had colored pencils, I think I might, I wonder if I still have it actually. Maybe like my memory is that I had colored pencils at least. And so we would check off the colored, like the, the different names, um, 
with or the different songs along with the name and check it off with colored pencils of like who who has it. I'm actually gonna go check that. I want, I'm curious if I have that still. Let me go look. Hopefully I didn't throw it away. Well, if I had it, it's not there anymore. It might be in like another folder somewhere, but it's not in the actual Animal Crossing game case, unfortunately. So anyways, yeah, I think it was like some of the things I really did. But I think, you know, I was so connected to the Internet as a kid that a lot of things I did ended up on the Internet in some way. So so, yeah, anyway, thank you again, Jillian, for that question. And thank you guys again for supporting me on this channel. I appreciate it. And uh, I believe there's a... uh, Kaminazo video coming up next for the Patreon for the bonus video. So I'll double check on that. I'm not 100% sure. But anyways, we're going to wrap up the show with a very, very tiny, tiny news section here. Um, basically, I have one update and then one game that I, I think was announced a while ago, but I just was not aware of it. But it's very much in our our uh, section here, our, 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 our wheelhouse here. The first news update, though, is about Miraculous Ladybug, The Rise of the Sphinx. Uh, this game we talked about a little while, while back ago. I watched the first season of Miraculous Ladybug, and I did enjoy um, it quite a bit. Uh, and I was kind of curious about this game because, you know, I, I like licensed games and things like that. Um, but when I saw that this game was announced, um, I was a little worried because the description sounded like kind of a generic beat-em-up. And I just don't really have a lot of interest in, in a game like that, probably, at least in, in the way that's described. And uh, unfortunately, they, they did put out a trailer. I think it's a launch trailer, actually. So the game is already out, I believe. Um, and it, it just kind of looks like a generic kind of isometric beat-em-up with, like, two-player support. Um, it reminds me a lot of, like, GameCube-era licensed games of just kind of, like, this this straightforward kind of go-through-a-level and then mash-one-button kind of thing. And then maybe a character has, like, a special um, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles one is the one I think the most of, although I never played that full game. I only ever played a demo of it. So it just didn't look particularly inspiring, but I will say like visually, I think it looks pretty good, um, from like a, like model perspective. I do think the animations look a little lackluster. Like there's little scenes with like the characters animating and stuff, but like their faces don't update or animate at all. So like stuff like that looks kind of weird. So it does look kind of budget. Um, but I do appreciate that they are making it. Um, I might, you know, take another look at it at some point when, when I think there's actually gameplay out there now. So I probably should take a look at, you know, some of the more longer term gameplay aspects of it. But from the trailer they showed, it looked pretty much like a mash a button through a bunch of miraculous ladybug environments. And each character has different animation sets, but like nothing really makes them stand apart. So that's unfortunate. I'm sure it's a fine video game though. You know, it, it, or at least I, I assume it's a fine video game. I, I obviously have not looked at it playing, but from the trailer, it looks fine. And the last game I want to talk about here real quick is Fitness Runner. Um, so Fitness Runner is a game, I believe from XFit, I think is the, the publisher and they're releasing this on Switch. And, um, it is, it is yet another Switch fitness game. Those games have, you know, been steadily coming in after, uh, you know, fitness boxing was really success successful. And then also, you know, ring fit adventure. And I do like that a lot of these have like different styles and aesthetics to them where fitness boxing is more straightforward and kind of realistic, although it has a lot of things going for it from like a character perspective. Um, but, uh, you know, ring fit being a very like kind of fantasy RPG kind of thing. So fitness runner kind of, uh, fits a different space where it's this kind of, I guess you'd say futuristic sports game in some ways. It kind of reminds me of reboot a little bit. If you're familiar with that, 
like early CG animated series on TV, but it's a lot of just like different, like, you know, hoverboarding games kind of thing, or like doing and, and doing running or, or jumping between different things. And um, while it's a little hard to say how successful it is as an exercise game, what did kind of surprise me was how much they're really asking the player to um, kind of, uh, extend, <laughs> extend, or maybe extend their disbelief or something like that. I don't know if that's the right word I'm looking for, because as far as I can tell, it only has Joy-Con support in your hand. So there are like leg straps for, you know, the Nintendo, uh, systems that you can have. Um, but I did not see any of the promotional material showing that. So people just had the two Joy-Cons in their hands. However, all the posing in game shows like a full body pose. And so they're, it looks like they're asking you to do, you know, these more full movement kind of things. And you can always kind of, you know, trick motion controls in general. Right. But I thought it was kind of interesting that, they, that you're doing a lot of this like lower body movement, but the game doesn't seem to be like kind of tracking it in any way kind of thing. Although I will say that like fitness boxing had a little bit of that where they like ask you to kind of duck come down and do uppercuts but you know um depending on the angle of the joy con i think they had ways to track that but you know you could probably just stand there and just do normal uppercuts but they had you know they had like little ducking things you do in there too that necessarily wasn't being 100 percent tracked right so anyways it, got, it has kind of a neat aesthetic to it although i believe it is a full-priced video game um and it has a physical copy in japan at least i did not see any mention of a u.s release um, i will say now that i'm thinking about it i did look into this um like last week so i haven't seen if there's been any updates since then and i think the game was announced like a month ago so we're not like you know on some kind of uh, you know uh breaking news uh, uh cycle here with fitness runner but it was a game that i just hadn't seen yet before and it kind of fits within that kind of neat fitness uh you know uh experience i think that joy the, the the switch has been kind of fostering um and to some degree and I, i'm really happy that like fitness boxing and stuff like that has been so successful because i'm a big fan of like Wii era style games and i feel like a lot of those kind of games have been you know only somewhat represented on the system but fitness stuff seems to be pretty consistent i've heard that like vr um systems have a lot of fitness stuff there too I really probably should try a VR headset or something like that at some point, like maybe get a quest or something, something that, you know, is just going to be easy to set up kind of thing um, at some point. But I just have a really hard time justifying it, unfortunately. So, but uh, yeah, I thought it looked like a really neat looking game. It's got a nice style to it. So if you're interested in fitness games on the Switch, I'm going to link their website in the notes if you are interested. Also, um, I was kind of surprised to find out recently. So if you, I guess familiar with, I'm, I'm asking you a question. Are you, okay, respond to my question out loud right now. Are you familiar with the developer Land Ho? No? Is that, a no, is that you said no there? <laughs> um, they're the developers of Pen Pen Triathlon. And I also picked up their game Dragon Blade recently. There's a been a few other games I think that I've played that are from Land Ho. And I, I had kind of assumed they were dead. You know, developers from like, you know, the 2000s or something like that don't stick around a long time usually or at least like smaller developers like that i feel like uh but they're still doing stuff but recently i found out that they worked on we cheer as well so like oh that's interesting they worked on a bunch of stuff actually they're still putting out um, um a bunch of games and one of the games they put out was uh i think it's called like fitness fink or something like that and we talked about this on the podcast a long time ago it was a very budget looking kind of fitness boxing um you know clone i guess you would say it, it just looked like you were getting less for the cost of the game versus fitness boxing so i really didn't have a lot of interest in it because it just seemed like a worse version of fitness boxing which who knows maybe it's fine it's like fitness fink or something like that but 
Anyways, um, so I was looking into them and I was just like looking just so many games that I am aware of that Lando has made. And I just like was not even aware of that to some degree. Stand. Like I kind of just know them as the Pimpen Triathlon developer. So anyways, that'll be it for this week. Thank you guys for coming. OneControlWord.com is the website. Uh, this week on the show, on the, the main channel, I say main channel because I'm probably going to split channels at some point at the end of this year. But uh, this week we're going to have a Doraemon video. I've been pushing it off for like two months because other videos kept getting in the way. Uh, it's a video about Doraemon for the Nintendo 64, a video I've been wanting to do a very long time. And I just kind of talk about it like within the context of Mario 64 a little bit because there's some things I feel like Doraemon does better than, or sorry, Mario 3D like platformers in general. Um, there's there's things that I think that game does a little bit better than than uh, Mario 64 games in some way. Um, does it well? Maybe it has interesting approaches to those ideas. Maybe it doesn't necessarily do them better, but I think there are things that a game like uh, a Mario 3D Mario could things that could they could learn from like a Doraemon game for the 64. But anyways, um, so that's coming up this week. And then I, I mentioned it on Twitter, but uh, from going forward for the rest of this year, things are probably going to slow down a little bit. We're going to mainly focus on the podcast and the stream because I've got two panels coming up that I'm working on and they're not coming together as well as I was hoped they would. And then I also have some stuff going on in the background with like channel splitting stuff and things like that that I need to worry about. Um, and it's also a little bit of a busy time for me in terms of normal work as well. So um, I'm going to kind of slow things down. I don't think I'm going to post any podcast highlights up or any kind of like in-between videos between, you know, whatever the next major feature video will be. But the two panels for sure will go up by the end of this year. And then uh, from there, uh, anything else that goes up, I'm just kind of like play by ear kind of thing. But uh, mainly it's going to be the podcast and the, uh, the stream for the rest of the year. So tune in for those and uh, I hope you enjoy them. And uh, yeah, glad to be back. And I'll be out again at the end of the month. We're going to KomoriCon. Uh, not the end of the month. Next month, we'll be going to KomoriCon. So um, I will be there in Portland yet again for that show. So anyways, thank you guys again so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I hope you guys have a great week. Bye.